Welcome to the second episode of the Lobby Bar Podcast. Um, you know, we're still experimenting with different formats, and today we're going to be doing cocktails and cases, where we talk about cases, have a drink, and just discuss what's going on in workers' comp. So today it's just me and Jason Ginhart. Say hi. Hey there, Roy. Hey there, everybody. Hey. How's everything going, buddy? Good, good. Yeah. So uh, I know Jason has a few cases he wants to discuss. Um, I have a few that um, I'm going to be talking to everybody about. Um, the first case I wanted to talk about was Garcia versus Mendoza doing business as Sweet Melody Express. So um, this is a case where the defendant is a custom dressmaker. She works out of her home, has no employees because she's the only one that um, makes the dresses. Um, and the applicant happens to be her um, housekeeper. So the housekeeper comes, you know, periodically cleans the home. And the facts would suggest that on occasion, the applicant did do some work um, on the dressmaking side. Um, the applicant was injured in 2014 um, on a in a specific incident, and um, she tried to claim workers' comp against the defendant. Um, the defendant obviously fought it, and the case ended up going to trial. The issue at trial was, was the applicant an employee of the defendant, either as an individual or as the business? Um, and so we all know that there are residential employees, people that come into your home and do work and, and things of that nature. And so they went to trial on that issue. Um, and the, the real bottom line issue was whether the applicant was actually an employee or whether the um, exemption um, that would exclude the applicant pursuant to 3352-8A um, applied. And um, that particular provision requires that for a residential employee to be considered an employee, um, the applicant had to have worked for the, um, the defendant more than 52 hours in the past 90 days. Um, and uh, the applicant um, didn't prove that bar. Um, and so in this particular case, the real takeaway was that the burden of proof lies on the applicant to prove that they are an employee and that the injury um, happened in the course of their employment. Um, if they don't meet that burden, then you know they, they can't prevail. And so in this particular case, the applicant didn't do enough um, to prove that she was an employee, didn't prove that she worked more than 52 hours and um, didn't fit within that exemption. So that was um, you know, appealed. Um, and the, the WCAB on reconsideration um, upheld the decision and said, you know, essentially that the applicant didn't um, prove her burden. Yeah, so I, I think, Roy, when I was like, uh, when I was reading this case too, <clears throat> I had a few uh, things that stood out to me. Uh, well, and I guess like as a, 
to start off for everybody on these cases. Uh, the cases that we're both talking about, other than the new case that just came out, the applied materials case that we'll talk about at the end, um, all of these cases are panel cases, so they're not necessarily binding. You know, they're persuasive and, uh, but certainly citable and comp. Uh, but when I saw this case about the the burden of proof, <clears throat> you know, when uh, Roy and our Roy and I are uh, dealing with new attorneys, a lot of times, um, and dealing with applicant attorneys and clients, it gets lost in the mix on who's burden of proof is what on different issues, you know, when you're, when Absolutely. you're litigating, you know, and, um, as far as AOE, COE employment, that's the applicant's burden. You know, if that goes to trial, it's always important as defendants to know that, uh, they, that they have to establish that, you know, but then on the flip side, things like affirmative defenses and, um, uh, and apportionment, those kind of things are entirely our burden to prove at trial and then the burden flips. So, I think it's an, it's important to remember that yeah when you have a case like this and uh, and you are going to trial that yeah uh, and this case affirms it that things like AOE COE are entirely the applicant's burden to prove and in this case they didn't she didn't do it right and to be honest like I was looking at that fifty two hours and you know like other than like nannies and people that are like full time employees or you know like pretty serious hours in somebody's household it'd be pretty hard like you would have to be a pretty filthy motherfucker to have someone clean your house for 52 hours in 90 oh, yeah. 90 days well in, in those kind of cases you know it's a lot of times it's you know these landscapers that are trying to bring it that get hurt on properties and contractors and stuff like that and, and then yeah you're right i mean it is a it's a it's it's a lot of hours to do. yeah to establish so yes but especially like you said on this you have a live-in nanny uh, which yeah. i guess outside of our realm <laughs> <laughs> or you just have a huge house you know where yeah. someone has to clean it for five hours every week but yeah yeah um so the case i wanted to t- the, the first case i was going to talk about um was uh also a panel case this is the um uh avila versus uh sutter of santa cruz case and it's uh a case about the six-month rule uh, for psych under 3208.3D. Uh, so uh, as has long been established uh, with psych and the, the, the six-month rule, the six-month rule doesn't have to be continuous. That's right in the labor code. Um, so there's a lot of cases on that, uh, that uh, t- and specifically the Gottschalk's case. But this case was a little different because this per, uh, person, this is an actually a really old case, uh, that must have been uh, being litigated for 18 years or so because the date of injury is 2002. So this lady uh, worked as a receptionist uh, for about a month in 2002. Uh, but prior to that, she had worked for the same employer for a year and a half, left the employer, worked for a year somewhere else, comes back, works for a month, files a claim, uh, physical injuries uh, along with psych. So it's a large case. It's an 89% uh, PD case. They have uh, a, a, a psych AME as well as a, uh, an orthopedic AME. It's, they're, we're talking 89% PD. <clears throat> so it was a heavy, heavily litigated case, obviously, for a long time. Goes to trial, and they're litigating whether or not psych is precluded under the six-month rule. The judge finds that it is not, that even though she only worked there for a month, 
she had previously worked there for a year and a half. So the, the six month of employment was essentially met. Uh, it gets appealed, goes up on recon. The commissioners review it and they find for the applicant and they basically indicate that the labor code says it doesn't have to be continuous. And because she did work there, even though there was a break of employment essentially, and even though she's accepted a new job and went somewhere else, that the labor that the the labor code was satisfied. So the the, the defendant made a good argument, and I, I still think it's a good argument, um, that the second period of employment was clearly not an extension of the first period of employment. She left. She gets another job. Um, and then comes back so that it should be considered a new period of employment, thus restarting the clock. Uh, but the commissioners in this case didn't, didn't agree with that uh, and found that. Did they, uh, did they give any guidance as to like how long that break could be? I mean, are we going to say, okay, a guy goes away for five years and then comes back? Like they didn't. So they all didn't. they said in the case was that labor code says it doesn't need to be continuous. So we are not going to make the restrict, make the labor code any more restrictive than it says in its face. So it says that you have to I've, be I've six months. I've seen this in yeah. practice um, prior to this case, but it was usually seasonal workers, you know? So somebody that works, you know, like three months and then is off for the off season and then works another three months. And then it ends up being a total of six months in the past yep. year. But, you know, like it, you know, it was like seasonal. And so, yeah. I, I could but see I think why the they would. To the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I could see why that would be considered um, within the intent of the labor code, but I don't see how someone just leaving and getting another yeah. job and then deciding to come back, um, how that is like a somehow a continuation of the work stress. Yeah. You know what I mean? There were in they were interim events, but that's a yeah. So in in the so the commissioners in their decision said, well, there's no requirement that it be a continuation or an extension from the first period of employment mm -hmm. to be considered in the time frame. You know, it's not. It is a panel case, so it's not. It's not binding. And then, I, but I and I I could see that if you had a case that was a little different. You know, if I worked at McDonald's when I was 16, worked there for a year, I'm. 40, I go back and work there. Day two, I file a, a, a <laughs> site claim. That set of facts right. I think would be, you know, when I've had 10 different jobs in the interim, right. uh, I, I can't even remember that I worked there. Um, that I think would, it, it's, it's might, might be a little fact specific and I could, I could see yeah. the judges taking a, but, but it's, it's the same rule. So I don't know, but it just I, seems I, fuzzy, I, right? Oh, it's fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It doesn't no, make sense you, that you leave. Why, and why does the six month rule exist? I mean, if they're saying it doesn't have to be a continuation of the prior employment, like the whole intent behind someone having to work there for six months was what was because like, we didn't want to just give people like the right to come in and work for two weeks and say, oh man, this is too stressful. Um, yep. I gotta, I gotta file a claim, you know, like someone had to put in some time, you yep. know, but yeah, it was to just, it was, it was to avoid fraudulent claims and these things coming up, right. like you said, on the second day of employment, which, you know, so yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a fuzzy case. 
I think it's back specific. If I got, if I had a case come in and I was litigating it and it was at all different than this, or if it was a longer period of time, or maybe even if it was the same similar set of facts, I might even, I might give it a go, you know, and, yeah. and this I think I would think be I a would good still case. Fight it. Oh yeah. yeah. And this would be a good case if I was on it where I would be looking at filing a writ, you know, when you're talking oh, yeah. about an 89% PD case and oh, psych yeah. is the main po- big portion, yeah. uh, there's no way I would take that line down on, yeah. uh, on a recon. Yeah. There's too much at stake yeah, and, and it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's nonsensical in my opinion. Yeah. And it's like I said, like it's just too fuzzy for it to be law, you know, yeah. like there's, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be some guideline to say, okay, this is what the labor code's intent was. And so we're going to make the judgment call to say that this is the amount of time, you know, like if they don't do that and they just say, well, it doesn't have to be continuous. There you go. You know, then I I just don't see how that, that just flies. Oh yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So the next case I wanted to talk about was Lee versus Kaiser Permanente. And so this is a, a case that handles um, some issues that are probably one of our favorite topics, which is liens. Um, and so this is really a tale as old as time, um, a case where the defendant sets the depot, notices the depot, advises all the parties that we're going to you know, schedule a court reporter and an interpreter. Um, we show up to the depot and the applicant's attorney walks in with an interpreter of his own because he doesn't trust our interpreter to... I don't know what, right? Like, what would our interpreter do that um, would jeopardize their case? But they often do this. And then we end up getting a bill from their interpreter and obviously our interpreter um, for the deposition. In this particular case, the defendant fought the the lien for the applicant's attorney's interpreter. Um, and kudos to them. Um, but essentially what the the court found was that because the defendant noticed the depot, um, they were responsible for providing the interpreter. And so they had to do it. That's part of our responsibility. If we were to schedule a depot and notice it and not provide an interpreter, we'd get in trouble for that. However, because we were the the party responsible for it, um, our interpreter was the one that should have been handling it. And so they gave some guidance um, on how a how an applicant's attorney could get their own interpreter to do the prep um, in objecting to our interpreter for the prep when we noticed the depot and advising that they would be providing their own interpreter so we could book an interpreter for depot only and not for prep. But um, short of that, they're basically saying, you know, if they if they just um, show up with an interpreter without any pre-discussions of what should be going on at the deposition, um, the burden is on the lien claimant to prove that their charges were reasonable and necessary. And if they can't prove that by showing that the applicant did object on time and did advise that they would be providing an interpreter for the prep, um, they're going to have a hard time proving that their lien was reasonable and necessary. And so I think this is a great case for us. And I think our defendants should be taking a close look at the lien situation when it comes to interpreters and making sure we object to the lien if the applicant's attorney shows up with their interpreter. 
Yeah, and I think even aside from when you say that they're bringing their own interpreters because uh, they may not trust ours, I think that could be the case sometimes. But I think um, a lot of times in practice, these applicant attorneys have close relationships with one interpreter. And right. you notice that even at the board, of course, when he used to go, um, or in depositions, they are always dragging the same interpreter there, you know, and so right. I don't know what, what the, what the arrangement is, but you know, the, I, I think it's just, they're just trying to give work to their interpreter and they know that when you're talking about a two, $300 bill, that defendants typically don't fight those, especially when you're, when you're talking about the grand scheme of things. So like you said, kudos to this defendant for actually I mean, taking it up on a recon. I mean, yeah. going to a lean, you know, they go to a lean conference and fighting a $300 bill. Then they, then they take it to trial, they lose then they go on then they take it up to recon. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah. they, they spent five times at least the amount of cost fighting it, Yeah, but they established some precedent at least. And you yeah, know that absolutely. with at least that applicant attorney, they're not going to be, yeah, uh, dealing and, with and you really have to credit Kaiser and their team because oh, yeah. um, at the end of the day, not a lot of uh, employers would be willing to spend that coin to to do that. But they really did took one for the team on this one. Absolutely. So my second case. So I had three. Um, so I, uh, my second case here is Toll versus uh, Department of Corrections, which is uh, a very new case panel case. Uh, I think it's another good case for defendant, defendants relating to um, asserting credits and specifically asserting credits in multiple cases. So it's a rather complicated case, but uh, the basics of it are it's a 2001 admitted case stipped out. <clears throat> Applicant files a petition for new and further, uh, as well as filing about three, three other subsequent claims. They go back to the um, AME, Dr. Avadia, in 2009, and Dr. Avadia says, well, yes, there's some new and further disability for one of the body parts, and in good faith, the defendant goes ahead, go ahead and uh, issues a check for about twenty-two, I mean, like about twenty-two thousand nine hundred dollars in permanent disability, the additional permanent disability that would be due for the additional PD based on that report. Well, apparently, the case doesn't get resolved right away probably because of the additional three cases that were filed. They go back to the AME down the road in 2015 and 2016. And in these subsequent cases or uh, subsequent reports from the uh, AME, he says, well, it's not new and further disability from the 2001 case. This is actually PD on the new CTs. So the defendants there, they've issued all the PD, but they've issued it on the old case and they assert credit on the new CTs, which seems logical. So obviously the applicant attorney doesn't agree, wants duplicate PD payments issued on the new cases, doesn't want the credit asserted, um, and they go to trial. It goes up um, and the board finds that no, in this case, uh, based on uh, labor code 4909, uh, the, the WCAB does have the power to award credit even across multiple cases. Um, and they specific, specifically said, um, so the board in this case, they use it, they use a, basically an equity test based on uh, prior cases. 
to determine if they're going to allow credit. And in this case, they said allowing the credit would not cause significant disruption in the applicant's benefit and would not be inequitable. So they allowed the credit against the other cases. What is important, because there's a prior uh, case, the, the Dunahue case, which also related to multiple dates of injury, where the WCAB said the defendants could not assert credit. That was a slightly different fact pattern where a defendant had a, a specific and a CT that were overlapping and we got and the defendant got apportionment between the two, paid all the PD on one, and then wanted credit against the other. And in that case, the WCAB, the WCAB said that they couldn't assert the credit um, because the defendant should not be able to benefit from the apportionment of the PD and then also the consolidation of the cases on the PDA issue, which made a little bit of sense, but still the applicant is getting double benefits in that sense. Um, so they distinguish it from that, the Dunahue case. And, but in these, all these credit issues, as we know, when we're, when we're litigating them are very fact, fact specific because it is an equity test. It's did the defendant act in good faith in issuing the benefits did they delay the benefits? Did they issue them on time? Those things are all factors. And in this case, they immediately issued good uh, benefits in good faith. And they were allowed to or awarded the credit against the cases. Um, so I think it, the, the takeaway on it for me <clears throat> is that, you know, from a defense standpoint, if you do the right thing um, and, you know, you, uh, your client issues payment, and it's later discovered that, okay, yeah, the, the payment should have been issued on another case. I think this is going to be a good case where you can say, yeah, it should be allowed uh, because it's not um, it's not prejudicing, prejudicing the applicant in any way by doing it. Right. Yeah, this one, I felt like it, it, it felt like common sense, but in workers' comp, even things that feel like common sense always are like pulling teeth. Yeah, and it's, yeah, even the common sense stuff sometimes doesn't work out. Doesn't go our way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have to fight to get credit for payments that you've issued in good faith just because it should yeah. be under a different claim number, uh, yeah. that's where. Yeah, they're, they're trying to argue. Like applicants attorneys always do this, though. They try to argue syntax, and it's like, hey, man, like, we're we're just trying to deliver benefits, right? And you're saying we paid it on the wrong claim, so we can only assert that credit against what future treatment on just yep. that claim? Come on, you know. Well, like, and the whole point of allowing credit under the labor code is to encourage defendants to issue benefits to applicant without delay, because otherwise, right. if you had any doubt, because yeah, we'd be easily, arguing it. Yeah, the <laughs> the defendant in this case could have said, "Well, there's four cases here. I want to make if there was no credit." possibilities. You're going to say, well, yeah. I'm going to make dang sure that out of these four cases with overlapping body parts, there's no apportionment across these cases. Right. There's no new CT right. before I'm going to issue a dollar. Right. And then the applicant's sitting there waiting. Right. Uh, so, you know, there'd be a, a lot of unintended consequences if these judges took uh, a hard stance on these credit issues, especially when the defendant's just doing the best they can, essentially, which is in this right. case, they did the best they could. Right. In law school, they called that a chilling effect, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I see. I uh, I remember very little of uh, yeah, me too. law school. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and I had I had one more panel case before we jump into the um, the, the new case that just uh, hit the wire a couple of days ago. Um, so I also wanted to talk about the Rosenbrook uh, versus Knight Swift transportation case, which is about kind of the new telehealth QME situation that we've all been dealing with. <clears throat> and I'll make this really brief because it's it's a fact specific situation too, and it's dealing with these new emergency regs that we're all dealing with. Um, so we know there's the new, the current emergency QME regulations, which are going to, which were extended and they're still in effect. They're in effect till at least October, 2021. Um, and it, the emergency regulations give about four points on when a telehealth QME evaluation would be appropriate. Um, and in this case, the defendant was doing everything they could to fight and not allow a telehealth QME appointment to go forward. The, the QME in this case said it would be appropriate that he could do it, um, that he didn't need it to be in person. Um, the applicant didn't need to travel to do the telehealth, sort of hit all the points that needed to be done. The defendant still didn't want to allow it. It goes up. And in this case, the WCAB says, well, no, the defendant cannot uh, unreasonably deny a virtual QME appointment. You know, so... I think the takeaway for me on it was not that you have to allow every virtual QME appointment because there are certainly situations where measurements need to be taken that cannot be done uh, virtually. Um, but this, I believe, was a, a reevaluation of an internal, so it's probably more of just an interview because the doctor said he didn't need to physically see him. Um, so my takeaway was, you know, you fight the ones you need to fight, but if it's simply because you don't want to do it, uh, you probably should let it go forward, you know, because at, at some point <clears throat> you're just delaying the inevitable uh, and you got to get the evaluation done. The defendant in this case was essentially arguing that they wanted to wait it out and have him evaluated once all COVID restrictions were lifted, <laughs> which is, I would have thought they would have been lifted 10 months ago. So yeah. I would, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd still be waiting if I was doing this, yeah. too, you know, last year. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I feel like it's, it's tough to put it's tough to put that um, responsibility and trust into the doctors because if you're gonna tap if you ask me like and I'm a doctor and I haven't seen patients for how long and I have a boat payment and <laughs> a vacation home payment to make and someone asks me like hey can you see this person via telehealth uh, I think 10 times out of 10 I'm saying hell yeah I can do that yeah. You know, regardless of whether measurements need to be taken or not. And so it's like, what I didn't like about this case is they put that all on the doctor. And if the doctor says it's okay, then, you know, cool. But it's like, you know, you really want to trust that that is okay. You know, like, and I'm not trying to throw any shade on doctors. You know, I'm just saying like, from a human standpoint, we all couldn't work. You know, we couldn't do a lot last year. And so if they were stuck and, you know, they couldn't make, you know, they had payments to make, um, you're damn right. I'm going to tell everyone telehealth will work. Even if I know it won't, you know? Right. right. And yeah. And I, I mean, can, I can see that point. Yeah. 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 So, I think I mean, it's, it's a tough situation. Yeah. And I think we've seen up North at least, um, a lot of doctors are doing the evaluations. We haven't been running into this issue like we were six, eight months ago. Uh, I would say that out of a panel, 
once the strikes occur and we were left with one, it seems like eight out of 10, our scheduling in person hasn't been much of an issue. Um, I think that the, the, the rub is going to be like a case like this comes out and now applicants are going to say, I don't want to go. Even if the doctor's yeah. willing to meet their the applicants right. are going to say, I don't want to go. I'm a, yeah. I'm a branch Covidian and I'm afraid of dying. And so, um, you know, what are you going to do then? Right. Cause the doctor says, Oh yeah, well I could, I could see them telehealth applicant says, I don't want to go. And then you're in a situation like the applicants choosing. Right. Right. The telehealth, you know, it's not the doctor. Um, that becomes a, a, a weird fight we have to consider. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So this case that just came down the wire, the applied materials case, I mean, it's entirely too complex um, as far as a fact pattern goes um, for us to get into really any details on it. I think we can give you like a, a drunk history version of it um, where we essentially think we're just talking about a typical industrial injury with multiple dates of injury, applicant goes and seeks treatment, case settles via stipulation. Um, the parties agree to use Dr. Massey as their primary treating physician. The applicant um, continues to treat with this doctor until such time, um, allegedly, the doctor uh, abused his relationship with um, his a patient and started having sexual relations with her. The applicant alleges that he um, held her benefits and treatment and medications um, as a hostage to having the sexual relationship. We, I, I don't know what happened. You know, I don't think any of us know truly what happened, but um, that's, those are the allegations that were made. Um, the applicant saw a psych PQME who found that the applicant was um, suffering from PTSD as a result of the treatment from uh, Dr. Massey and um, the subsequent affair, um, and essentially said that the applicant was 100% uh, permanently uh, disabled based on her psychiatric condition and her inability to work, but gave her a GAF score of 45. Um, so following that trial, um, the judge awarded the applicant a 100% disability, and um, it went up to the Sixth District Court of Appeals, and that court addressed you know, the various issues involved in this case. Um, first, um, and possibly most troubling, but I don't think that this particular fact pattern we're going to see often. Um, but, you know, even, even something as intentional as a doctor committing malpractice by um, pursuing a sexual relationship with his patient um, was found to be a compensable consequence to her treatment. Um, that is a troubling expansion of what a compensable consequence can be. And, you know, like many of the other cases we discussed, it's probably going to be fact specific because um, like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should see this often. Yeah. And I think you, when I was looking at yeah, right, I think there was a few things that if they were different, we might've seen a different outcome, at least on the compensable consequence. So and 
<clears throat> like Roy mentioned, this I think was a 70 something page decision. So we could do it just an hour talking about this, but like as far as the condensed version. So she alleges that the sexual contact and inappropriateness started at his office during appointments. So I think that's one piece of it that he was mm-hmm. groping her during appointments. Then it sounds like it went to somewhat of a consensual sexual encounter for a month. Then he continued to go to her home where she was rejecting him and declining the sexual advances. Then shortly after files the complaint. So I, the, the, the appellate court in this seemed to really latch on to the, the, the theory that, uh, consequences of medical treatment are going to be compensable and that it started at the office and you know that if the defense was arguing that this was a consensual sexual encounter that was outside of the purview of industrial medical treatment didn't arise from employment that kind of thing um and i think if it was simply that they started dating and it had an inappropriate relationship and it moved outside i think it might have been a little different but it's, there were some specific facts that the appellate court put forth that made it sound pretty pretty inappropriate from the start. Like like you mentioned that the the doctor was allegedly uh, threatening to cut off her disability slips if she wouldn't see him, if she if she wouldn't let him over those kind of things. So yeah, <clears throat> like you said, it's a fact. It's 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 a it's a disturbing. Uh, probably fact-specific situation. Uh, But it would generally seem that it expands what could possibly be a compensable consequence injury, per se, you know, Um, because it's a very twisted situation that's going on there. Yeah. And And then the, the upholding of the Fitzpatrick, you know, if you want to touch on that. Yeah, so... The Fitzpatrick case obviously was a big case a year or two ago, um, which discussed 4662 and how you can rebut the strict schedule and get to 100%. And in that case, the Fitzpatrick case, um, you had an AME that essentially said, okay, this person is 100 based on the facts. Um, In Fitzpatrick, the court said, well, no, you can't do that. There's a, you can only go through established ways. You can go through uh, rebutting the schedule via Ogilvy, uh, uh, LaBeouf, and the Dahl line of cases as to whether somebody is amenable to vote rehab, or you uh, rebut it in the four corners of the guide through Guzman. Uh, those were the two ways that Fitzpatrick said you could do it. So this case was very similar to... Fitzpatrick in the sense that you have the AME psych saying, well, this, this person is a 45 uh, GAF, which I believe translates to 40 or so percent whole person rated out. But on a psychiatric basis, she can't work is what he says, the, what the AME says. And uh, the judge in this case essentially does exactly what Fitzpatrick did and awards hundred percent based on the uh, AME report. So I think the, the 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 good part for defendants that came out in this is that the court 
upholds Fitzpatrick because the applicant was trying to say that Fitzpatrick was wrongly decided. So the the court upholds Fitzpatrick and says, no, you can't do that. Um, The court also says that even if you went through rebutting on the the LaBeouf side of cases, you know, through Ogilvy, through Dahl, trying to say that the person is not amenable to rehab, that the AME in this case is not a vocational expert and uh, that it wouldn't be substantial evidence, even if the AME said that they were not amenable, which is sort of the first time that's happened because, you know, when you, when you're looking at rebutting it or an applicant rebutting the schedule, many times they will ask the AMEs and QMEs if they can go back to work or if they're amenable to rehab. In this case, seems to add a little bit of ammo to the defendants where you can say, no, <clears throat> an AME, QME discussing those kind of work restrictions, if they do just throw out this 100% scenario, even if they use the right words, according to the uh, the Dahl and uh, the uh, uh, LaBeouf uh, line of cases, even if they use the right words, it probably would not be substantial medical evidence because they're not a vocational expert. Um, right. So those were the big things I took out of it, the evidentiary part, and then yeah. Fitzpatrick is still good law. Yeah. And I feel like that's a good learning moment for both sides when it comes to a- uh, AMEs or your PQMEs, like addressing um, just disability, disability and voc rehab issues or ability to work issues. Um, yep is you know they're they're not qualified to do it so if you need um if you need to rebut the applicant's voc rehab expert you need a voc rehab expert you can't rely on your medical doctor's opinion and then if you know if the doctor is saying 100 percent and they don't get a vr expert you know Maybe you just sit on your hands and let them, yeah, you know. But I think hang themselves by their for defendants. I think, like you said, that's a good point because you know we see so many of these god awful, ridiculous vocational reports that are clearly absurd on their face that an applicant right. attorney will just go get, and it says they're a hundred and they've got twenty percent permanent disability under the guise, but yet they can't work. And the the what you want to do as a defendant is just to, just to ram it to the WCAB and pr- show that this th- VOC report is clearly not substantial, like you said. But right. your QME report is likely not going to help you when it comes to the vocational yeah. issues. So you have right. to go all out in those cases. Make sure you have a rebuttal report pointing out all the flaws in these templated vocational applicant reports that we see and providing lists of the jobs the applicant can do within their restrictions so that you don't go down the path of getting blindsided. Right. Because that's what would happen, I think. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of wraps up the cases that we had prepared for uh, discussion today. Um, We'll be putting in the, uh, the notes the case sites, and um, I'm hoping to be able to do chapter markers so that you could just kind of skip around and listen to the discussions that you're more interested in. But um, if you have any questions about any of these cases, you know, you can reach out to us at any time.
Thanks, Jason, for jumping on. Yep. Nice to see you, Roy. Good to see you, buddy.